This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Beauty, recorded April 24th, 1994 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. In the 13th century, Meister Eckhart, who was a great Christian mystic, wrote, quoting Dionysius the Arapagate, who was a great uh, 8th century Christian mystic, Dionysius says, The race is nothing but a turning away from all created things and a uniting oneself with that which is uncreated. And as the soul attains this, it loses its name and it draws God into itself, so that in itself it becomes nothing, as the sun draws up the red dawn into itself, so that it becomes nothing. It's passages like this that people often refer to when they accuse mystics of being anti-worldly. And you will find the same sort of passage in every single tradition. Uh, this idea that you have to turn away from the world, uh, turn away from the things of the world, and so forth. And so a lot of people um, don't like mystical traditions because they think, well, this is all anti-worldly and anti-life and anti-joy and anti-all that. However, Elsewhere, Dionysius says that beauty is one of God's greatest names. Uh, much like the Islamic tradition and the early Christian tradition, that uh, the, there was this idea that God had certain names, and each of these names were drenched with significance. The good, the beautiful, being, the just, and so forth. But beauty was one of the great names of God. And since this is true... No single existing thing is entirely deprived of participation in the beautiful. For as the scriptures say, all things are very beautiful. Holy contemplation can therefore be derived from all things. So this seems to be some sort of contradiction here. On the one hand, Dionysus says uh, the race is nothing but a turning away from all created things. And then... Uh, elsewhere, he says, uh, all creative things, in a sense, participate in that divine beauty. And all, so therefore, all creative things are, created things are in some sense beautiful themselves, and then they can be objects of holy contemplation. Maybe there are two paths here. One's the sort of worldly path you could take, and the other's the anti-worldly path. And I've also, uh, uh, read this, or come across this thesis in, modern uh, spiritual literature. That, oh, well, I'm, I'm on the creation uh, spirituality path and, and uh, other people are on the sort of anti-creation spirituality path. Of course, uh, for most people, if this was true, no, no one would go on the anti-worldly path. Everybody would go on the worldly path. In fact, it's not true. It's not so. Uh, Again, just like you'll find a passage such as the first one of Dionysius' recommending turning away from all created things uh, in all spiritual traditions, you will find the second sort of passage in all spiritual traditions. Uh, in uh, mystics everywhere have celebrated beauty, the beauty of the world. For instance, um, in the Bible, God's creation is beautiful. It's good from the very beginning. Uh, in Christian tradition, uh, Incidentally, one of the great heresies that the early church fought was the idea that the world was evil. That was a dualism, and very, it surfaced in various forms, uh, that the, the world of the flesh was somehow in itself evil. And the church fought um, 
uh, very much against that idea. Since God created everything, how could it be evil? Uh, in uh, Hinduism, you have uh, expressions like, or metaphors like, the world is the dance of Shiva. The world itself is Shiva's very dance. Uh, sometimes it's described as Brahman's lila, the play of Brahman. This whole world of forms is nothing but the play of Brahman. In uh, Tibetan tradition, the world is often described as a mandala of primal awareness. It's sort of like a beautiful mandala, or mandala in Tibetan tradition is a, a painting that symbolizes the totality of the world of forms. And so you sometimes you contemplate this world as a mandala, a mandala that's created by that primal awareness. And in almost all traditions, in some sense, the world is somehow either a creation or a play of what we would call consciousness, consciousness itself. Uh, and therefore, the things of the world are uh, themselves uh, objects, can be objects of veneration, of blessedness, of beauty, and so forth. Uh, Muhammad, for instance, said that there were three things made blessed to him. One was prayer, one was perfume, and one was women. And we don't usually think of perfume and women as being particularly uh, sacred or particularly spiritual. St. Francis, of course, most of you are probably familiar with this famous hymn to Brother Sun and Sister Moon, which is just all a praise of uh, the elements of creation. Uh, if you read uh, Job in the Jewish tradition, uh, God's self-revelation to Job is uh, the, the whole creation. You know, the whales, the bottom of the ocean, and the mountains, and so forth. God says, where were you when I created all this? And then in uh, the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's revelation to Arjuna is the same thing. Uh, let me read you a couple of uh, verses from Krishna's ve revelation. Krishna tells Arjuna, I am the flavor in water, the radiance in the sun and moon. I am the scent of promise in the earth, and the burning strength in the fire, the life in all creatures. I take the offering, I am the offering. I scorch, I stop and send rain. I am deathlessness in death. My shape is unmanifest, but I pervade the whole world. All beings have their being in me, but I do not rest in them. And this is just the several verses of a, of a long peon to the, the fact that Krishna is in all things. All things are somehow expressions of Krishna. So the mystical literature is full of these sorts of praises, then why this other teaching about turning away from all created things? If it's true that, uh, that Shiva's in the water and in the uh, fire and so forth, then why this necessity to turn away from created things? Well, there's a clue in what we just read, uh, This what Krishna says. Krishna says, all things have their being in me, in consciousness, as we would say, but consciousness does not rest in them. You could think of it as, uh, in a certain sense, the world of form is consciousness is uh, constantly moving. Consciousness doesn't, in one sense, doesn't move, but in another sense, it does. It's constantly moving through forms, if you like. Rumi has a wonderful way of putting it. He says, the world's forms are foam upon the sea. All the forms, all that we experience are the foam of the sea. And the, the whole idea of foam is this, this uh, insubstantiality. It's just, uh, it bubbles and it disappears and bubbles and disappears. It's almost as if we could say uh, consciousness is constantly appearing in form. And the trouble is, we grab the form. 
we try to grab the foam. But consciousness moves on and the foam, the form dissolves. We don't see that other side of it. We don't see the sea, we only see the foam. And because the foam is constantly dissolving, when we try to grab onto it, when we think it's the foam, the form itself, that's going to make us happy, of course, uh, it disappears, and that's what generates our unhappiness or our suffering. So, uh, and the more we do this, and the more we become attached to these forms, the more suffering we have. So in almost all spiritual traditions, the very first uh, teaching is to turn away from the form itself, because you don't see the beauty, you don't see the divinity in the form. All you see is the form, and you become attached to the form. Turning away from created things, then, is a practice of detachment. It's sort of weaning us from an addiction, if you like. But it's very important to understand that this is a practice. It's a difficult practice. For most people, it requires a lot of paying attention and a, and a great commitment to really watching how this attachment works, watching how it produces this suffering. It's not just a matter of philosophical knowledge. If you only have philosophical knowledge, it really won't affect your life. But when you see in your uh, own experience how impermanent things are, how empty they are of existence, and that your attachment to them is silly, then you begin to yourself become detached. There's no big problem about letting go, but you really have to ex examine, look at this. Some people, and for actually most people, if, uh, in some sense, in some little ways, you have to experiment with a little asceticism. You see the attachments by giving up things. This is, was certainly true of my experience, and as uh, in terms of at least the most people that I know of, it's true of their experience too. A lot of people say, oh, I'm not attached to this, I'm not attached to that. You don't know until you actually have to do without it. Then your attachment rises to the surface, then you can see it very clearly. So in almost all traditions, the beginning practice, the beginning approach is to turn away from the world of form to try to um, uh, at least generate a little detachment from it, a little uh, a bit of an ability to let go of forms, to see this nature of their impermanence, and then to see the nature of their emptiness, and that's very important too and more difficult. The impermanence of forms we understand intellectually uh, almost immediately. To actually experience that moment to moment is more difficult, but not that difficult. But then to see that because forms are so impermanent, they are, they are kind of like um, rainbows or smoke rings or something. They have no substantiality of in and of themselves. And this is very important to see because at that point, forms start to become kind of transparent. And by that, I mean that then the the a certain uh, divine light starts to shine through them. They become transparent to the sea behind them, underneath them. And this is an actual experience I'm talking about, or a series of experiences, or insights. Not all necessarily big, uh, aha, jumping up and down in the middle of meditation, but slowly, gradually, the world of form, the world of experience starts to change for you. And it's at this point, then, 
that the, as Dionysius says, that the contemplation, the holy contemplation of forms starts to become practical. So the, uh, the contemplation of form and the turning away from forms aren't contradictory teachings. They are just, uh, two stages of an unfolding practice. And that's a very good lesson to learn, by the way, because many times when you think you're running across contradictory teachings, uh, in mystical literature, if you look into it more closely, you'll find that they aren't really contradictory. They refer to two different stages of practice or two different levels of truth or something like that. So then, how do we, what does it mean to contemplate God in form? What is the, the sign of God in form, if you like? Well, the sign of God in form is beauty. It's not the beauty itself or that the form itself has beauty. It's that the form itself is transparent to beauty, and beauty is that sign that God is manifesting in the form, or consciousness is manifesting in the form. Here's how Plato described this practice, then, of trying to follow the beauty that keeps manifesting in form. And let me emphasize before I read this, this is a practice. Almost all of us experience beauty sometimes in our lives. I hope you do. Otherwise, your life is real hell. And that's wonderful. And that's great. The trouble is people don't realize beauty is a sign of the divine. They, they, they just think beauty is some sort of subjective thing, at least in our culture. That sort, sort of happens, you know. Uh, you see a, a sunset and you say, oh, how beautiful. And then it fades away and, and you go on to something else. Often people don't think beauty has any sort of reality or, or true value in our culture. It's sort of something superfluous. It's not, you know, uh, uh, practical, pragmatic. You can't, you know, buy it, sell it. Well, you can. We try, actually. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> if, it, if it's captured and people recognize it enough, like in a Rembrandt, boy, you can sell it, yes. Uh, but we're, then we're not valuing the beauty. We're saying, oh, you know what that Rembrandt cost? 14 million bucks. How about that? Ain't bad, huh? I wish I had one of those Rembrandts who just lost all sense of what this was about. Do you see what I'm talking about? Beauty in itself has value because beauty is a sign of God. So the practice is a real practice. It's not just going out to the uh, you know, the coast and watching the sunset for a weekend. It takes uh, a more uh, discipline and more dedication and more observation and, of course, more paying attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender, just applying those principles. So this is Plato writing in the Symposium, the dialogue I mentioned earlier, if you're interested in reading the whole instruction. This is just a, a bit of it. And he says, beginning from beautiful things to mount for that beauty's sake ever upwards, as by a flight of steps from one to two, and from two to all beautiful bodies, and from beautiful bodies to beautiful pursuits and practices, and from practices to beautiful learnings, so that from learning he may come at last to that perfect learning, which is the learning solely of that beauty itself, and may know at last that which is the perfection of beauty. You get the idea here? This is really five stages in this practice as he lays it out. The first stage is one of 
just taking one beautiful object, a beautiful body, as he says, a sensible one he's talking about, too. A picture. Uh, you might find something like your car is beautiful. Well, that's fine. It doesn't have to be art. Anything that you find beautiful. And then it's contemplating the beauty of that one body, really trying to get to know what beauty is, really trying to feel beauty, allowing, if you like, beauty to work in you. And then moving on and going to other beautiful objects, and now it's trying to see what these two objects have in common. That which we call beauty. What is that that we call beauty that these two objects have in common? For instance, uh, maybe some of you uh, have particular objects that you find beautiful. Does anybody here have anything particular that they find beautiful? Flowers. Flowers. What else? Music. Music. What do music and flowers have in common? That's a good one. Well, flowers are, are these funny visual things. Mostly they appear in the visual fields, in the sense and sometimes in the smell field. They give off a nice perfume and all that. They don't give off any sound, usually. I mean, some people will say they're very sensitive. They can hear flowers talking and stuff, but I've never. <laughs> I don't think anybody says that. <laughs> oh, no, I've heard people say that. I, I thought flowers could hear you, but I didn't know you could hear them. Well, I mean, I don't hear them, so to me that's quite different anyway. I hear them at another level, but I don't hear them actually speaking in sound. Now, sound sound doesn't have any appearance in a visual field, and it has no smell. What's the scent of sound? Sometimes we will use a metaphor and we'll say, oh, that's a sweet piece of music, and that's something you might say about sound. That's, I mean, about smell. That's a very sweet-smelling flower. But truly speaking, when we come down to examining the, uh, the actual appearance, Sounds don't aren't sweet or bitter or aromatic. But do you think sounds are beautiful at all? Music? Do you think flowers are beautiful? So what is what is beauty then? Uh, uh, this is an open question here. It's what it awakens in your heart. And what does it awaken in your heart? It awakens, uh, as far as I'm able to talk about it, uh, this kind of expansion, uh, exciting feeling. That's about as close as I can get to. How about somebody else? Yeah. It gives you a feeling of joy. Joy? Expansive, exciting joy? <laughs> sense of wonder. Wonder. Oh, very good. Wonder. On wonder. What else? Yeah. Well, it brings me right into the present moment. So if there is stuff rolling around in there, it's it's not getting me at that time. It clears your mind a little bit of of your personal concerns and worries and troubles. Is that true? It's certainly true of music, isn't it? Maybe we call that selflessness. <laughs> huh? Say gratitude. 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 All these, uh, notice all these descriptions are descriptions you'll find mystics use when they talk about the divine. Right? Awe, wonder, gratitude, joy, expansion. We get a little clue here. Interesting. 
if beauty is what is awakened in the heart, then the beauty is not actually synonymous with the form. Let me put it that way. The form is acting as a kind of a catalyst, a trigger, right? So when we say, oh, that's a beautiful sunset, that's not really quite true, is it? The sunset isn't beautiful. But in a, from another point of view, it is. The sunset is beautiful, isn't it? We wouldn't say, well, the sunset's not beautiful. Maybe what we have here is a sort of like uh, mirrors reflecting something that both have, that's underlying, that they have in common, that transcends the boundary between the subject and the object. Maybe we have here uh, a, a, a true experience of exactly what Krishna talked about when he said, I pervade the world. So the opening of the heart and the sense of beauty in the heart isn't different than the beauty in the sunset. We can't really distinguish them. Have you ever had this experience that you thought something was beautiful at one time and another time you passed it by and it didn't strike you as being beautiful? Has anybody ever had that experience? Give me one example. Well, I can, my babies. <laughs> they would be so beautiful and then they would get ugh. Ah. so it depended on my state as to whether they were I mean you know it would not necessarily depend on how they were you know sometimes they were clean sometimes they were dirty it was more the state I was in and how I um, accepted them or not how would you phrase that in terms of what you just said about the heart it was whether my heart was open or not right so maybe, actually, there's a clue here too. Maybe everything is equally beautiful and it has nothing to do with... It's not that some things in the world are more beautiful than other things. It has to do with whether our heart's open or not. Yeah. Sometimes I'll find I won't see the beauty in something and then I'll see it late, at a later time and I'll realize that I was... Um, being very judgmental at the beginning, and then my judgment, I somehow got suspended, and then I was able to see the beauty or hear the beauty or something. That's, that's a little bit what uh, Jim was saying about the mind has to be a little quiet. Mm -hmm. If the mind's full of its own concerns or judgments in this case, mm -hmm. then it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So when the mind gets a little quiet, there's the relation of mind and heart, which aren't really separate things. In our culture, we have these two uh, different words for it. For instance, in Chinese, there's one word for mind and heart. It means both, and it can be translated either way, and neither does it complete justice. I think it's Sing. Is anybody? You studied a little Chinese, didn't you? Sing, is it pronounced that way? H-S-I-N-G, I think it's the... Yeah, Xing, Sing. The calm mind, open heart. Busy mind, closed heart. Look how much we learn here. I mean, we're just now talking. We haven't, we're not actually doing the practice, but how much we can learn just from looking, comparing two bodies and trying to see what is beauty. Two beautiful bodies, right? Look how much we can, we can get out of it just in a, in a, in a discussion here. And then he goes on and he says, then after you've compared 
two or many beautiful bodies. And comparing here is watching your reaction, all the things we've just talked about, really watching it. When is it beautiful? When the heart's open, when the mind's quiet, when it's not, you know what I mean? And let's never forget, and the one great thing about taking beauty as the object for holy contemplation is beauty is joyful. You know that your contemplation is working, so to speak, when there's joy. The, the, the joy is, is a facet of the beauty. So the more you do this contemplation, this kind of meditation, the more uh, happiness and joy you experience. And you may begin to, it may begin to dawn on you then that the reason the whole world isn't uh, blasting you with beauty at all times is something to do not with the fact that the world is ugly, but there's something to do with the fact of something going on inside. Busy mind, judgmental mind, closed heart, those sorts of things. This is a great insight. We were at a, talking about uh, beautiful forms, we were at a uh, concert last night that uh, uh, a group that Ellen's in called Inspirational Sounds. They, they, a uh, Christian group, basically, and they do Christian gospel music. And as one of the uh, people pointed out last night, gospel means good news. This is very good news indeed. Because if the world is mostly ugly and only a little bit of beauty in it once in a while, you're not going to be able to do anything much about it. You're up the creek. Little old you is not going to go out and make the whole world beautiful. There are people who try that and they have tremendous suffering. I mean, the best you can do maybe is do a little graffiti and get one wall, you know, some wall that you thought was ugly and make it pretty and, you know, trim up your lawn and work in your garden a little bit and make one little corner of the earth uh, beautiful. But you're not going to be able to make the universe beautiful if that is the case, if the, be- if the universe isn't already beautiful. The good news, though, is it's not, the fault is not in the stars it's in ourselves, and that is something you can do about. This is the gospel of all mystical traditions. All mystical traditions have the good news. It's not something only Christians have. And some Christians have forgotten what the true good news is, frankly. It's something you can do about now, here. So it's very important to be able to see this, to see that, uh, to, and you're using beauty as a kind of um, uh, a gauge, a barometer in your practice. And joy, the joy that comes with it. So then Plato goes on, he says, well, and then we're going to graduate from beautiful bodies, uh, uh, sensible objects and so forth, to beautiful practices and pursuits. And he means uh, uh, practices of uh, basically virtues and precepts here. Practicing various virtues. We don't normally think of that in our culture as beautiful. But what would it mean? Why is, uh, why is virtue beautiful? That sounds, I mean, we do sometimes say that, but it sounds sort of Victorian or a little archaic. We don't usually hear people talk about that today. But why did people ever think that virtues were beautiful? What does it mean to say that? 
it approaches the selflessness again, the practicing virtue. Um, I think of it particularly in terms of other relationships with other people, would be looking at their best interest instead of your own, mm-hmm. not acting in accord with that which is selfless and therefore divine. Okay, let's take a, a good example. Let's take um, uh, an example. We, we, we still today say, oh, that's, she's a beautiful person. And we don't necessarily mean that she's physically a beautiful person. Do you know what I mean? We might say Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she's a beautiful person. That's exactly why, just for the reasons you said, right? She's selfless, warm, open-hearted. Isn't that what we usually mean when we say somebody's a beautiful person? If you think about it, what we're talking about is their virtues. What the two uh, different people, uh, uh, different bodies, who may look very different, have in common if we say, oh, those, those are two of the most beautiful people I've ever met. Well, usually when people say that, they mean that uh, they brought on, being with those folks has brought on this experience of, of uh, joy, expansion of the heart. And if you examine it, you find very similar to the experience you have when you're watching a sunset, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're seeing the beauty in a sunset. Well, sometimes people say that when they mean their ego has been fanned, too. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like I, I've heard people say that they feel so good because... Somebody's been very nice to them, and I think that's such a beautiful person, and all that person's done is uh, fan the ego of the person, the speaker. Yes, that can happen. There's such a thing as uh, a false, giving somebody a false sense of joy, but we find that in, in terms of physical things, too, you know. Oh, truly, uh, yes. But still, what's being perceived, whether it may be false, what's being perceived is an act of kindness. Mm-hmm. The person who's being fanned is perceiving this as an act of kindness, and the person who's doing the fanning, if they are a true charlatan, if they don't really feel that, have faked kindness fairly well. So they've counterfeited a valuable coin. You know, this is very interesting. Uh, sometimes people point to uh, charlatans in the mystical path, and there certainly are, and say, well, you see, this this proves that the that mystical teachers aren't valuable. And Rumi has a great line about that or Al-Ghazali, one of them, he says, you know, the fact that there are counterfeits around only proves that there's genuine value. Nobody counterfeits things that aren't, don't have genuine value. There's no big uh, uh, black market for counterfeit Confederate dollar bills today. Because what's the point? You're counterfeiting something that has no value. There's a big black market on for Confederate uh, American U.S. dollar bills today because they do have value in a monetary sense. So just because there are counterfeits around, uh, A, doesn't mean that there isn't something of genuine value, and B, is almost proof positive that there is something of genuine value. Because nobody would bother counterfeiting if there wasn't. But when it's genuine, it doesn't, always, it doesn't have to be perfectly pure, just a little bit of kindness, a little bit of compassion. either given or received. Who's had some experience of either giving or receiving? A little love, a little compassion. I'm in a concrete experience. Specific one. 
And this is the point of this practice. See, this is the point of this practice. It's not to say, oh, well, love and compassion are nice, yes. It's to observe. We're trying to observe in specific situations, in specific encounters, with a sunset, with a work of art, with a specific person, in a specific situation. Yeah. One that comes to my mind is when our Wednesday group was practicing uh, charity. Uh-huh. And uh, I saw this young couple with and a baby out in the rain with a sign of please help out of gas or something. And uh, I gave them all the money I had, I had in the wallet. Actually, I only gave them $20, but I had another five left. Instead of the five, I gave them the 20 instead. And I thought about it, and even if it was just a gimmick they were doing, I just felt really good about having done that. There's an act of virtue. Yeah, and it, we were practicing <coughs> Right. Charity. No, yes, right. But notice that, that, uh, that it's the same feeling that you get with the beauty of when you're in the presence of beautiful, sensible objects. See what we're doing? We're tracking beauty. It's like being a hunter. It's like you're following, you could say beauty is the footprints of the divine in the world of form, and you're following those footprints. You're following beauty back to its lair, because if you keep following it, you'll get back to the lair, and then you'll see what Plato talked about, the perfection of beauty. When we talk about beautiful persons, and we talk about... uh Beautiful virtues. Where the point of the practice is to is to be very mindful, to be very uh, uh, and be paying a lot of attention, so that when you're in the presence of virtuous acts, either given or received, and so forth, you can recognize this. You can say, "Aha, beauty! Aha, I've got the scent of the divine." And you can observe things like whether your heart is open or whether it's closed, whether your mind's busy with a lot of judgments or self-concerns or not. And you can start to see what is the difference between happiness and suffering in your own experience. And the more you do this practice, the more you will want to do this practice. Because you'll feel good. It's that simple. you feel happy. Then he goes on from, Plato goes on to the fourth stage, moving from the beautiful practices and precepts to beautiful learnings. Now, really what Plato has in mind are insights gleaned from math, what we would call today science and philosophy. Philosophy, by the way, used to mean the love of wisdom. That's where the word comes from. Philo means love, you know, like Philadelphia. And uh, Sophie, as Sophia was the god of, goddess of wisdom, so philosophia's love of the goddess of wisdom. So a philosopher is a lover of the goddess of wisdom. That's the original derivation, and and that was very very important in that in the Plato's idea of philosophy. It wasn't the way philosophy is practiced in academia now, which is all about logic. Not that Plato was not logical. He believed, actually, that logic was an, actually another expression of beauty in the world. The logic and order of the world. The harmony of the world. So, he's talking about um, uh, these beautiful learnings are the study of math, astronomy, philosophy, and so forth. Have you ever had any experience of uh, beauty in learning? 
Yeah. I, uh, there's this. Just uh, the feeling of discovering something new. I mean, I, I, I can't really think of any one concrete one, but I've just always had the feeling that when I learned something, something all of a sudden that wasn't, I wasn't aware of, to suddenly become aware. It was always just a beautiful feeling. Ah, okay. Let's let's examine this more. Has everybody? Has anybody else ever had this feeling? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Should be fairly fairly common. I hope so. Uh, it's the motive for most people for learning. I mean, with true learning, if you're just learning because your teacher is going to give you a grade, you're not really learning. It's when you want to make some sort of discovery. Well, let's let's have other. Anybody having a, a more specific example of this, so we can see if we can find out more about it. When I first figured out quadratic equations and how they worked, it was just unending. I just keep putting it over and over because of the, the symmetry. You could start with, you could put in all different uh, variables in, in these things, and then to have it uh, all come out, always the same. You know, when you get the answer, that was just... Would you call it beautiful? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Uh -huh. And what did you feel? I felt that expansion and excitement and uh, like there was some secret I was learning. And that was like that. Yeah. yeah. I kind of remember an example now of feeling that way when I learned foreign languages. When I, when I was learning French or learning Spanish. And just to, it was also felt like kind of unlocking a secret code. And there was something very, um, yes. very exciting. Oh. Now, yeah. think carefully. Do you remember any specific moments in studying the foreign language? Well, I, I just remember uh, applying what I learned when I went to France uh -huh. and, and being able to communicate with people. And even if I just asked really simple little questions, that kind of thing, to have them answer me and then teach me. That, I, that was really the best part of learning, was having them teach me by talking to me. Because at that point, I had the basis of, you know, uh -huh. the foundation for to, to assimilate what they taught me. And I remember to have them teach me, one person teach me the slang way to say yes. Because that was how you could always uh, tell a foreigner, was they always said, we. Oui. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I remember really, you know, thinking that was great and feeling very privileged. So it's the understanding, uh -huh. understanding, when things start to come together. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have... Last time I was in Mexico, you know, there was, I mean, a few simple little phrases. I'd be, somebody would be speaking to me, and, I, and I'd say, oh, I understood that. Oh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. <It is>. Amazing. <laughs> Wondrous. So we got language, we got math. What else? You got another example? Or? Well, I've been feeling that excitement every, ever since I started coming to the center, because it seemed like I'd been, for years, going through these, getting little pieces that didn't really fit together, and then all of a sudden... All of a sudden, now she just said it fit together. This is what symmetry and harmony is all about, and this is why Plato recommended studying mathematics and astronomy and so forth. These are studies of symmetry and harmony. Symmetry and harmony is to see the whole. When you only see, when you see the world broken up into pieces, that is the definition of ugliness in Platonic uh, view. 
when you can see the whole, when you can see the wholeness, as we would say in this culture, behind things, really see it, not just talk about, oh, the world as a whole, but when you see it, when you have that insight, whether it's some specific part of the world, like a language, uh, whether it's mathematics, when it all starts to fit together, there's that same sense of wonder, the heart opening, excitement, right? Now, notice in this case, it's not necessarily that you're, uh, or in any of these cases, it's not necessarily that your mind is a blank, but the focus is on the quadratic equation, not on your problems in that moment. The focus is on the communication, not on that language. You know, it's interesting because the secret of uh, science, and a lot of people, again, think that mysticism and science are contradictory. And the secret of science is the perception of the mathematical beauty in the world. It, it did not come about through any sort of materialist dogma or doctrine. That got added on. But the original scientists in the West were Platonists. They were reacting against Aristotle, who came to the West late, and they went back to study Plato. And, for instance, Copernicus, who had studied uh, Plato, and Pythagoras, who was another mystic, a, a mathematical mystic, his whole description of how he came upon the heliocentric theory, the sun-centered theory of the Earth, as opposed to the, of the universe, as, as opposed to the, the Earth-centered one, is based on beauty. And he talks about it, and you can read it. He said that he looked at the, the old Ptolemaic system, where the Earth was supposed to be the center, and, and by the way, which made the absolute common sense, you know, that everybody, his idea was ridiculous to most people in the beginning because nobody felt the earth move and, uh, you, you know, I pick up a gong and I, and I drop it and if the earth was moving, it should drop over here because the earth should move out from under it, you see what I mean? And all sorts of really practical, common sense reasons why the, why his theory was ridiculous. So he wasn't going on, uh, experience and experiment and facts and practical stuff like that. He looked at this mathematical system trying to account for uh, the movement of the planets. And in the Ptolemaic system, the planets went, and then they had to double back, and they doubled back again. And he said, this is ugly. And he said, this is like making a picture by taking the, the foot of a horse and the head of an ox and the hand of a human and all that, and you put them all together, and it's a monstrosity. It wasn't beautiful. Now, notice this. Why should the world be beautiful? Nobody said the world has to be beautiful. Maybe the world is ugly. Maybe it is a monstrosity, which a lot of people who are cynical think. He was convinced in his heart, from a mystical intuition, the world had to be beautiful. And he looked at it again, and he, and he got some clues from uh, some of the early Platonists, and he reworked it all with the sun at the center, and it was all beautiful circles moving around. The whole thing was him tracking beauty. Tracking beauty. Not a materialist-based thing. Read Kepler, who did uh, more on the Copernicus work. He worked out the exact uh, elliptical orbits of the planets and so forth. You mentioned the, the quadratics. 
oh boy, when he saw it, he writes like a mystic, and he was a mystic. He writes that he's he's seen the the archetypes uh, archetypes of God. He's looked into God's mind, and I mean, he just raves. It's you know, he was truly a mystic. All this to him was a mystical uh, pursuit of God. His astronomy. <clears throat> Let me read you. Uh, uh, one thing here from uh, Werner, Werner Heisenberg. Werner Heisenberg was one of the founders of quantum mechanics, and he talks about his big breakthrough. And this came, this was in the 20s, and they discovered this quanta, but it didn't make any sense. They couldn't get any equations to make it any, uh, make any sense out of it, just like, very much like, by the way, Copernicus. And uh, he and uh, Niels Bohr, who was his colleague, uh, you know, we're struggling with this and struggling with this and starting to get into a lot of arguments and fights as people do. And finally, uh, he decided to take off, just, you know, get away from it all for a little bit. He was also suffering from hay fever. So he went to this island uh, off the coast of Denmark, I guess it was. And uh, just, you know, like we, you might go to the coast, you know, you get fed up with all this and go to the coast. Relax your mind. Relax your mind. And... After a few days there, uh, he started trying out a new calculation. And he describes this. When the first term seemed to accord with the energy principle, I became very excited. And I began to make countless arithmetical errors. As a result, it was almost three o'clock in the morning before the final result of my computations lay before me. At first, I was alarmed. I had the feeling that through the surface of atomic phenomena, I was looking at a strangely beautiful interior. And I felt almost giddy at the thought that I had now had to probe this wealth of mathematical structures nature had so generously spread out before me. I was far too excited to sleep. Hasn't he describing what you've all described in all your encounters with beauty? The same thing. So this is why Plato says, moving on, starting with beautiful bodies, the beautiful practices, virtues, and so forth, to moving on to this idea of this harmony and symmetry that the mind can see through mathematics, through philosophy and things, behind everything. We may not... Uh, in our culture, studies—I uh, mean, some people do—they're specialists. But it takes to be a specialist to study astronomy or mathematics. But in our practice here, at least at the center, we can get this somewhat from a uh, spiritual philosophy, you might say. And I emphasize usually more uh, reading spiritual texts from a more pragmatic point of view. They are maps, they are instructions, and if you do the practice, you will see for yourself. But so is the philosophy in a certain sense an instruction. It guides the mind. Let me read you one fairly difficult passage from Abin Arabi, and we'll talk about it a little bit, and maybe you can see a little bit of this. The reality... That's his term for Allah. That's, by the way, a very common al-haq. That's a very common term that the Sufis use for Allah. The reality wanted to see the essence of his most beautiful names, or to put it another way, to see his own essence in an all-inclusive object encompassing the whole divine command, which qualified by existence would reveal to him his own mystery. Now, that's not easy to grasp at the first reading. 
but this is his trying to explain to you uh, the nature of the the manifest and the unmanifest and their relationship. In a certain sense, trying to answer this question, why is the world here? The reality wanted to see the essence of his most beautiful names. Now, the reality here is also, there's this um, uh, anthropomorphism saying he, he wanted to see as though it was a human being, but how else do you express what is in consciousness? which as humans we talk about in terms of motivation and will and so forth. It's not that consciousness is some other human being, but consciousness itself, as we all experience and know, has motivation and will and feeling and expression. Consciousness is a great artist. Consciousness is a great artist which contains every possible name, every possible form. Every possibility. And that's what he means when he says, reality wants to see the essence of his most beautiful names. Or to put another way, to see his own essence, because the essence is all these possibilities, infinite possibilities, every possibility. In an all-inclusive object, in some object where some canvas where all these names can be written out, expressed, manifested. In some all-inclusive object encompassing the whole divine command, the divine command, the imagination of the artist, which qualified by existence, that is, qualified by existence, the possibilities don't, have any form until they are qualified, until they're given a kind of existence. Until, until you choose one and stick it on the canvas. If, if any of you ever done any writing or painting or anything like that, uh, often the initial uh, stages, there's this sort of feeling of pregnancy. You want to sort of get it all out and even a pressure to get it all out. It's all buzzing around in your head, if, in, sometimes in a very formless state. You don't have to be a, an artist or a writer. Sometimes you say, I, I know what I want to say, but I can't, you know what I mean? Have you ever had that experience? You know what you want to say, but you can't give it form. As long as it's all the possibilities are all there together, nothing can stand out. It's only you have to choose. One has to come out at a time. Put it there, it's got form. It dissolves away, you put the other one there. Each word is, is exactly like speech. And why the principle in Christian um cosmology of creation is the Word, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Notice how my speech is like foam on the sea, the way Rumi talked about it. I say a word, and it's gone. I say a word, that sentence only makes sense. It's, it depends on the fact that each one comes and goes and dissolves. I can't get, I say a word all out at once. You know, you could do that. You could record I say word on a, on, on three different tapes and play them all at once and it would be gibberish to you. They have to be qualified by existence. They have to be given existence. It's momentary existence. How silly if I wanted to hang on to one word forever. Word. 
You know, last night in the concert, it's interesting. Occasionally they do that. Pick a note and just hang on it, hang on it. And this sort of excitement generates, you know, and it's like, but if it did really go on forever, it, it would be a Chinese torture, you know? <laughs> There's, it's a building and building, and then the, the conductor cuts it off, and there's silence. And everybody applauds. Wonderful, you know? It depends. It's all a play of sound and silence. Sound and silence. Existence and non-existence. Foam and sea. Look, this is what he's saying, you see, in philosophical terms. Qualified by existence would reveal to him his own mystery. That's wonderful. Now, now some modern theologians, or later, I say later Western, not just Western, I'm sure that's true in Islam and stuff, they get all hung up on, they, they take all these metaphors literally, and then they get all hung up and say, this is blasphemy. How can God be a mystery to himself? God is omniscient. He must know everything. And then they get into all these problems about free will and God, and does God, if God knows what's going to happen, why does he allow, you know, this and they, they just tie themselves in knots. God is a mystery, constantly expressing that mystery, revealing that mystery. There's no, there's no self in there, but this is what all this is. It's the constant manifestation of mystery. Mystery upon mystery upon mystery. This is beautiful. Contemplating this is beautiful contemplating this, you begin to get a sense of the world. That will change your experience of the world, just as Copernicus's new vision of the world changed all our experience of the world. Completely. We live in a different world now. In the Ptolemaic world, you couldn't go to the moon. Changed completely. You see what a shift in at the I say intellect, the intellect level, not the intellectual in the sense that we think of it today, but the level of this intellectual understanding, the understanding of the intellect. When that, when that sees a vision of beauty, everything changes. So we've moved here from, uh, this looking at sensible bodies, looking at practices, then looking at uh, thoughts, the, the thoughts, the, the, uh, the perception of harmony by the eye of the mind. Yes? Uh, as you're saying, you know, at one time nobody could believe that you could go to the moon, but in, in some ways it seems like our civilization is in a, in a place now where you could believe almost anything. You know? I mean, I, I don't doubt a whole lot of anything anymore. And I don't know if that's a product of this time or if it's a personal thing. No, you, you, you are. Because people have gone to the moon. Okay, so why couldn't they go farther, I say? And why couldn't, uh, like in Star Trek, why couldn't our bodies dissolve and then come somewhere else? You know, it's like, I almost feel like there are no more things that could shock me or that no more things that I doubt. I mean, I don't know. It's true. There's one, there's only one, uh, the, there's one thing to remember. Anything is possible, truly, and people have lived in all sorts of worlds, and they're going to live in all sorts of more worlds to come. This isn't the end of it, you know. But all worlds that are livable, are, that we can live in, are uh, they're not anarchy. They are uh, worlds that follow the laws of form. The laws of form are very flexible, and the laws of form 
are determined by making certain choices in the beginning, and then everything starts to unfold in a certain way. You can put it this way. A world has, to, worlds are imaginary. That's why everything's possible. Worlds are literally imaginary. They are created by, out of the thought of consciousness. But there's one thing about imagination, and you can test this out for yourself right now. Close your eyes. Now, imagine a square. Right? Now, wipe the square away and imagine a circle. Now, wipe the circle away. Now, imagine one figure that is both a circle and a square. Not a circle in a square or a square in a circle, but one figure that is at the same time a circle and a square. Can you do that? Well, I think of a, like a stop sign and an octagon. No, that's an octagon. That's not a circle and a square. You can open your eyes. Or if you want to keep trying. Imagine something well, I mean, that... You may not see it, but I, I, I imagine it. You know what I mean? It's like... Imagine a surface that's, that's completely covered with white paint and completely covered with black paint at the same time. And you see it, that that's true at the same time. I don't think I can do that to your vision. No. You cannot imagine things that are contradictory. This is the basis of logic. A world has to make... When we say a world has to make sense, that doesn't make sense. We mean there's a contradiction. I can't imagine it. Consciousness cannot imagine a contradictory world. It can't be done. It's not, it's not because... You know, it just can't be done. That is the law of form. So this is why... Uh, uh, Heisenberg and Bohr were tearing their hair out trying to figure out their equations. They, everything was coming out contradictory. You could not imagine it. You see? This is what the logic really means. It comes from the Greek word logos, by the way, which is the exact same word as word in the Bible. When we say, you know, in the beginning was the word, that's a translation in Greek is in the beginning was the logos. And in, in Greek, logos means much, it means word, but it means much more. It means measuring, it means ratio, it means distinguishing, dividing, uh, numbers. It has all that sense in it, which is what words do. They divide, distinguish, do you know what I mean? And the, the world is an expression of logos. It's an expression of form that has symmetry, that has harmony, meaning that it's not self-contradictory. So, yes, sure, you can believe anything. Anything that, 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 uh, that fits with the harmony of this world is possible in this world. Yeah, but what I was saying though is I don't think it used to be that way. You know, generations past, no one could believe such things. Or oh, but their worlds, imagined, but, but their worlds had a different logos. But in their in yeah, their right. worlds, so in their worlds, shamans uh, shamans would fly to the moon. And shamans could project their spirits out of their bodies and go into other bodies and so forth. All sorts of possibilities were possible in that world that aren't possible in this world. So it's true that uh, it, did, it was not possible for them to build a rocket ship and go to the moon. But it's possible for shamans to fly to the moon. So, you know, this, this is the whole thing. You cannot have, in the world of form, you cannot have everything. Form is is... Depends on the absence. Something's left out.
That's why you qualified by existence. You take all these possibilities and then you qualify and you come up with a particular world. You cannot paint the Mona Lisa and Guernica on the same canvas at the same time. You got to choose. You're going to paint the Mona Lisa, you're going to paint Guernica. You see what I mean? If you try to do both at once, you'll have a monstrosity. Okay, so uh, we've gone through these stages up to this, this uh, fifth stage of contemplating ideas. Now, I want to just read you a summary from Bonaventure of this, um, from St. Bonaventure. Again, we'll give you some idea of how mystics saw the world, thought of the world, experienced the world. By the way, uh, the, the soul's journey to God is the same sort of process that, we, that Plato's just laid out in, in a very concise form. He goes into it a lot more detail and a lot more pragmatically. But he's summing up here, he says, after contemplating the bodies and the uh, practices and how the whole cosmos, the whole creation, he says, whoever therefore is not enlightened by such splendor of created things is blind. Whoever is not awakened by such outcries is deaf. Whoever does not praise God because of all these effects is dumb. Whoever does not discover the first principle from such clear signs is a fool. Therefore, open your eyes, alert the ears of your spirit, open your lips and apply your heart, so that in all creatures you may see, hear, praise, love and worship, glorify and honor your God. And then he has a very prophetic warning. Least the whole world rise against you. Now, people who say that mystics are, you know, anti-world and don't like the world, they don't read mystics. They don't read mystics. They don't read about the splendor of all creation and what it means and what's a sign of. And the people who are anti-mystics and think that mystics are anti-world and materials particularly, their tradition begins with Francis Bacon, one of the fathers of modern materialism, saying the purpose of nature is to serve our happiness, not to be an expression of the divine, is to serve our material happiness. Knowledge is power, is what he said, and the way we will get this power, and this is a quote, we will put nature to the rack and force her to reveal her secrets. That's the attitude of materialism towards nature. This is not, this is anti-world, if anything ever was anti-world. This is to set yourself up in complete conflict with the world, to treat the world not as an expression of the divine, but as some sort of slave, from which you are going to wrench out, uh, you know, what you want. Is it any wonder that the world has turned and risen against us today with that attitude? And it has. And every day you can read about it in the newspaper, see it on the news. The last thing I saw was a, a story about um, uh, antibiotics now uh, are no longer effective because there are these bacteria are developing all these antibiotic-resistant strains. This idea that we can conquer nature once and for all and sort of lock her up and stick her in a cage and make her perform like a trained monkey is insane, literally and pathologically insane. It's not a, a mystic's idea at all. 
So remember these things when you hear these criticisms. And, and, and when you read yourself, you'll come across passages, as you will, about turning away from created things. And you'll say, oh, gee, that sounds sort of anti-world, I don't like that. That is part of the picture, part of the practice. But it leads to a complete embrace and, and, and a following, as I said, beauty and, and discovering more and more beauty and discovering finally what Dionysius says, that nothing is deprived of beauty in the world. But then we get to the final and last stage, the most mysterious that uh, Plato talks about. And he says, the stage of perfect learning, which is learning solely of that beauty itself. Notice, in a sense, what we've been trying to do is we see the beauty in, in uh, sensible bodies, and we're trying to see what beauty is, apart from the particular body that it appears in. And when you see it in, a, in virtues or practices, what is, what is the beauty there? And then we see it in more and more abstract sorts of things, mathematics. But what is beauty itself? Why do we want to know what beauty itself is? Because if you know what beauty itself is, you know what God itself is, what consciousness itself is, what the divine is. It's the sea that makes the foam. So... This is like uh, Rabia's story, uh, where she's sitting in her uh, little hut and she's meditating. And it's a beautiful day, like today. And her neighbor goes by and says, "Rabia, Rabia, come on outside and see all the beautiful things uh, that are made." And Rabia says to her neighbor, "You come on inside and see the one who made these beautiful things." This isn't a, isn't that the beautiful things aren't worthy, or it's that. But if you if you have never seen the source. If you have never seen the, the underlying reality, then all this will be just phone to you. Rumi says, therefore, pass beyond form, escape from names, flee titles and names towards meaning. Meaning divorced from form, meaning divorced from titles and names. What happens? Here's how Plato describes it. Whoever shall be guided so far towards the mysteries of love by contemplating beautiful things rightly in due order is approaching the last grade. There is an end to this. Suddenly he will behold beauty marvelous in its nature, that very beauty for the sake of which all other earlier hardships had been born. In the first place everlasting and never being born, nor perishing, neither increasing nor diminishing. Secondly, not beautiful here and ugly there, not beautiful now and ugly then, not beautiful in one direction and ugly in another direction, not beautiful in one place and ugly in another place. Which is usually how we experience the world, isn't it? But to see beauty everywhere, permanent, eternal, Unchanging again, aren't all these the the the, the names that are applied to uh, the divine? You follow beauty and you reach that which is eternal, which does not change, which is not impermanent, which will not dissolve in your grasp. That's true happiness. That is happiness. That is beauty. That is joy. All those are just nothing but names of that. The divine names of that. Now, 
This also, though, sounds like it's some other world. I mean, beyond all these forms and names. And so then people have this other false idea that the end of the path is some sort of formless, I think Alan Watts once put it, uh, some sort of formless pablum, you know, <laughs> a mush. <laughs> so it is, you're it's just going to be this radiant light of beauty, you know, and that's it. Uh, do you know what that's like? That's like the tone of music that goes, ah, pretty soon that's going to drive you nuts. This is, more concretely, this is what a lot of fundamentalists think paradise is like. You're going to go up there and, and all the problems are going to end and you're just going to praise God. You're going to sing literally hymns on harps to God for all eternity. I tell you, after about 10,000 years, you're going to get pretty bored with those hymns. <laughs> as beautiful as they are. You're going to want some funky rock and roll or something just to, you know, have a change of pace. That's false, though. That's false. Because the whole dichotomy between form and formlessness, between the divine and the world, is false. It's not a dichotomy that mystics created. It's the dichotomy you already have in your life. You don't look at the car and see God. You look at a car and you see car, and then you think God is something else. That's not mystics' fault that you think that or feel that or experience that. So mystics just make use of that. Well, you think God is not in the car? Well, we'll go find God then. I'll take you by the hand and, and uh, you know, I'll point you in the direction and go off. It's true that in pursuing beauty through form, you progressively, in a certain sense, strip away the form until beauty is revealed, stands naked, as consciousness itself, God, Brahman, whatever. But form itself simultaneously revealed as beauty, as consciousness, as God. This very world of life and death, of samsara, is indistinguishable from nirvana, as the Buddha said. It's you who's been making this distinction. Not, it's not a true distinction. You could say it's like going, you, you start the path off and you, you, you're going, 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 and at the end you realize you've come full circle and the only thing is you've, you've finished the circle and now you're outside the circle. The circle hasn't disappeared. The form hasn't disappeared. Even to say you're outside it is not quite true. Let's just say the circle no longer binds you. You're no longer bound by the foam. You see that the foam is the sea and the sea is the foam. And it's only delusion that can, tries to separate them. This is why Rumi says, uses a, a metaphor here of an astrolobe. An astrolobe, if you don't know, is a device that the Arabs uh, cooked up to... Uh, tell which direction Mecca was from any place on the planet because they had to bow to Mecca. You know, Muslims don't bow to the east, they bow to Mecca. I mean, most Christians ran into them when they were west of Mecca and saw them bowing to the east. But if you happen to be east of Mecca, you bow west, you bow to Mecca. So by looking at the stars, you could line up your astrolobe and you would know where Mecca was and then you could pray. So you just have to know that about, about what an astrolobe is. Rumi says, he who knows himself knows his Lord. 
Just as the copper astrolabe mirrors the heavens, man's existence is God's astrolabe. When God causes man to have a knowledge of him and be familiar with him, moment by moment he observes the theophanies of God and his ineffable beauty from the astrolabe of his own existence. That beauty will never be absent from his mirror. Ah, that's beautifully put. The theophanies of God. Everything is a theophany. You know what theophany means? It means a form of God, a, a, a birth. <clears throat> so the paper's a theophany, the, the couch is a theophany, the pillow's a theophany. To see that is true, though, is the trick. Not just to, not just because Rumi said it. The world of form becomes experienced as not a world of forms, it's just God. Everywhere you look is God. And he says, that beauty will never be absent from his mirror. Finally, another way of putting this, very different, very different culture. Here's how uh, Zen masters used to describe the end of the path in, in terms of the uh, ox herding pictures, the eight ox herding or ten ox herding pictures that depict this spiritual path. Inside my gate, a thousand sages do not know me. The beauty of my garden is invisible. Why should one search for the footprints of the patriarchs? I go to the marketplace with my wine bottle and return home with my staff. I visit the wine shops and the market, and everyone I look upon becomes enlightened. Saying the same thing. Nothing special. Enlightenment isn't sitting off in some cave in some other realm. It's going to the wine <coughs> shop. It's going down to the bar. It's coming home. What's different? Everyone you look upon becomes enlightened. Everyone you look upon is enlightened. They don't know it, but you know it. You see it. Everything you look upon is enlightened. The grass, the stones... The trees. So just another way of saying it's all the divine names. Different culture. Very different way of putting it, but saying the same thing. The trick, however, is, of course, as always, to see it for yourself. So this is how you can not just appreciate beauty as some sort of passing, uh, superfluous uh, aspect of existence while you're busy about conducting real life, but how you can actually start to examine beauty, to pursue beauty, and if you do, it will lead you to beauty itself, and beauty itself is God. Any questions or comments? To see the disorganization, like you were talking about the materialists, um, you know, want to put nature on the back and that sort of thing. Um, you could get to God that way by seeing the disorganization and then that that doesn't work. And then what does work is the organization. I, I'm not quite following your question. Um, sure. <laughs> um, in, in my experience, one of the things that motivated me 
to go on a spiritual path was the disorganization of the world and the what at least I perceive people acting on assumptions about the world that uh, a didn't seem to have any basis anymore. I'm talking specifically, for instance, acting on materialist assumptions, but physics no longer supports them. It's just a habit left over from the past and leading both personally and uh, socially very destructive lives. And so that made me think, well, if these assumptions that that I had always held in my life, <clears throat> looking at them and saying, gee, these really aren't true, they're not logical, they don't make any sense, they don't fit with physics anymore, you know, where do they come from? That started me thinking, well, maybe there's another way to envision the world. Maybe the, uh, the you know, the materialist view of the world is false. And if the material, and I'm living in a, with a materialist view of the world, or I had been most of my life up to that time, and that means I'm living with a false view of the world. That means the decisions I'm making uh, are based on on a delusion. They're not based on reality. Well, that, to me, that's frightening. You know, if you start to realize that all the decisions you make in your life are based on some sort of delusion, uh, you the, the next when you want to stop and go find out what's the truth, you know, so you can start making some uh, rational decisions instead of irrational decisions. Okay, that sort of answers. Like what I'm thinking of is somebody of Norwich who always says there's no sin that the world is perfect. This kind of a thing. So um, the the perfection and the fact that the disorganization isn't working is in fact that there is organization. Oh, and if you want to take the the uh, what I'm saying now. <laughs> yeah, if you want to take the the deepest view of it, the most mm -hmm. providential view, uh, yes, you have to say, well, this this too is the play of Leela. Mm -hmm. You know, right now we're in a period where. Kali is erasing her last canvas so she can paint some new one, you know? So we experience this as, you know, disorganization, pain, suffering, and all that. But in the, in the, in the giant scheme of things, no, there's not, there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. There is something wrong with our perception. And it isn't fundamental. That's the good news. It's mm -hmm. curable, if you like. But it's not only that everything is sort of a-okay from some distant perspective, it's, if when you begin to see in your own case that suffering, confusion, and so forth is part of what motivates you to go on a spiritual path, and so therefore it's really working for you, and is what's sort of pushing you along so that you realize the divine and then become an expression of the divine, you see that this was like the, the agony of the artist trying to express, you know, the, the birth pains. And then it's out. Well, then you see, oh, well, the birth pains were necessary too. This was all part of consciousness's realization of its own forms. Ultimately, you could put it this way. It's not, there's no ultimate way of speaking about these things, but you could put it in a poetic way. The whole, the name of the game is consciousness uh, realizes itself and that was why it assumed form in the first place, so it could know its own mystery. So the day that you know your own mystery is, is the day that consciousness knows its own mystery, as Abina Rabi talked about, you know what I mean? But you get there and see for yourself. Go up to the mountain, take a look at the view. Don't ask me. I can't describe it.
Okay. Well, let's uh, bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're all welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library. And peace to you all until we meet again. <laughs>